0: Hello, and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times, so I'm here to explain how it works who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. So welcome back to Balagan. And today I have another special guest who's going to talk to us about, I would say, some explosive topic. And that's uh, why Israel is like Donald Trump. I mean, the American president is really controversial and doesn't gain a lot of credit outside of the U.S., but in one state, in the Middle East, he gains to a lot of recognition. Maybe it's more than one state, by the way, but we're going to discuss it with our guest. But first, allow me to introduce him. Kobe Barda, a dear friend of mine and the author oh. of two books. One of them that is relevant for our today's conversation is The Key to Understanding Donald J. Trump the president who broke the rules of the game. Kobe was one of the first ones to identify Trump's strategies and tactics and the way he worked with the media and with the politicians. And I can say from first hand that uh, Kobe was one of the first to say that Trump is going to take the presidential elections in 2016. We're not going to discuss what's going to happen in a month and a half in America, but we will discuss with Kobe... What is going on between Trump and Israel, Trump and Netanyahu, or Trump and the Middle East in overall? So, Kobe, welcome. I'm really happy to have you here. And I'm handing the mic to you.
1: First, uh, let me thank you and your audience uh, for hosting me. We'll start with a little disclaimer, in which I think it's very important to understand. I'm trying as a researcher, I'm currently a PhD candidate in the University of Haifa, uh, to look at things in a perspective that is within the shoes of the current person that I'm, as a historian, trying to figure out. So basically, Donald Trump is not historian point of view because it's a present. It's not exactly related to the historian point of view, but I'm trying to deliver his point of view to people that most of the time have a bias about him and then... It's very hard for them to try to understand why he's doing what he does and what is uh, usually the, uh, if you want to call it, the mastermind behind understanding what is Donald Trump. So the topic that we were trying to discuss today is the special relation of Israelis to Donald Trump. And by the way, this is also, you can see in the numbers, Pew Research, the last one, gave more than 70% of Israelis proving Donald Trump. This is by far the most impressive numbers for President Trump that we know usually in the United States is somewhere between 40 to 50%, depending on the time, depend on the poll company. And second after Israelis, the Philippines with 58%. So if you can try to get the overview of uh, what is the nation that is approving Trump more than any other nation in the world, that will be the Israelis. And one can ask himself, how come that Israelis, which are Jews who live in the Middle East and the Jews who live in America, have such an, you know, it's like a black and white because that's almost the same numbers, but just the the other way around. The opposite, exactly. I don't remember any president in the history of the United States that Israelis were so approved within his special relations to Israel. And if I
0: try... Maybe Clinton, right? But I'm not sure of that also.
1: I think that, you know, Clinton may be in the peak of the days of the peace treaty with Rabin, but then when the bombing started, I don't exactly remember the numbers, but I don't think that any president was in such a high rating, such the current uh, president has with Israelis. And you know the question that needs to be asked is how come a president that you know most of the world, if you want to call it, look at him as a vulgar, as an offensive president, is being so cherished and so loved in just one nation all around the globe? And if you try to go under the skin of the Israelis and try to start to understand what is it so different in President Trump versus other president, I would start with who was the president before him. And the president before him was President Obama. And at the beginning of the Obama era, at 2008, when he was just elected, there were a lot of Israelis, I don't exactly remember the number, but there were a lot of Israelis who approved President Obama because there is no question related to his charisma, to his magnitude, to his story, to become the first black Afro-American president in the history. And so, at least at the beginning, there was very strong ties between Israelis and the President Obama. But soon enough, and I know that now there are a lot of people who, within the Obama administration, who would say that that was one of the biggest issues or the biggest problem that breaks between Israel and President Obama was when he decided to make his trip to Egypt and and not to stop for a visit Israel. in Israel. Exactly. And that's where Israelis, which extremely, extremely begging for gestures, did not receive. And people here in Israel look at that as, if you would like to say, spit in the face, okay? That the president wouldn't mind just to stop by to go visit Israel, you know, as a jester. And obviously later, especially as the Iran deal started to make kind of um, approaching into the finish line that the Obama administration tried to deliver, the feeling, the sense is that America throwing Israel under the bus. So what Israelis, unlike American Jews, have is the existential threat of a second Holocaust. And usually Jews who live in America arrived before the Shah, most of them. They arrived at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th 20th century, and they boomed and flourished in America and weren't part of the Holocaust as a story. Yes, of course, there are uh, refugees who eventually escaped or fled to America, but it's not the vast majority. And people who live in Israel here either have a relative who was first, second, or third generation to Holocaust, and the story of the Six-Day War when it was also, again, an existential threat to the Israelis. And so I would call it a deep scratch within the mind of Israelis. It's a deep scratch. By the way, if you want to look at that, that's one of the most amazing things. I don't know if you know that, but if you look at the Jewish female labor in the world, okay, the top in the world, in the OECD countries, is Israel. 3.1 3.1 kids okay that's the top yeah. in the world second is turkey with 1.8 you know who is the lowest in the world jewish female from california which is 1.3 so look at the difference between a jew who live in israel and a jew who live in california it's the two opposite because You know, if you ask a young lady in California, the way to fulfill herself is to go on the course, on on the career, to get a better paying job, not get married before the age of 40. Whereas in Jewish ladies who live in Israel, the most important thing is, to carry on the torch. Okay? So to get more kids and have a big family. This is one of the most important Israeli values.
0: Even in secular families, of we course, must say. Course, I mean course, I think course, that the average course. secular family will have the 3.8 kids or three kids, you know, at least.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know even what more than that, Kobe. If you look at the Russian who made Aliyah to Israel, usually they would have one point five kids when they arrived or attend to Israel, they would have at least two point five or three kids, which is amazing because they're adapting themselves to the way of thinking here in Israel. So they flee from Russia, Soviet Union, where they had 1.5 kids and a dog, and when they come to Israel, they become part of the DNA. So this whole exposition, if you want, to the story lay us to the feeling, most of the people who live in Israel, that at the end of the Obama regime, it was... Some of the Israelis would call him anti Semitic. Some of the Israelis would call him Barack Hussein Obama. In order, when they say Hussein, is to emphasize that he's the Muslim, that he hates the Jews, even though, and I open brackets for that, that he was the president that signed on a $30 billion, 10 years uh, treaty with Israel. But most of the Israelis, if you will ask the common Israeli in the street, what do you think about Obama? He will tell you that he was the worst president in the history for Israel. So, we have a low expectation of the last president, okay? And a president in which delivers or promises, I remember him in APAC, March 2016. If somebody wants to go on the web, press Trump speech at APAC, and go over all the things he said, I did it more than one time, there is not even one single thing that he promised there, at the APAC conference that he didn't carry out within his first term of the office and you can go and check and you know you get to see that some of the people laugh when he say that because nobody really believed him because when he come and say i will stop transferring money to the palestinians because instead of teaching their kids to be a firefighter or athlete they're rather pay it to uh, terrorist families so people laugh because they thought it's empty gesture of somebody who come to speak at APAC but eventually if you look what happened, and you want to go on the checkbox and check, you would see everything that he promised in the APAC conference 2016. He excelled himself because, for instance, he never talked about the Golan Heights to uh, give the uh, authorization or the sovereignty over the Golan. So everything he said, he said, I will dismiss the Iran deal. He dismissed it. He said, I will move the embassy to Jerusalem. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem. He said, I will promote the deal which is the deal of the century with the Arab nation. And tomorrow, uh, we're just recording that one night before the ceremony yeah. in the White House. Eventually, what he promised, promised was kept because there is Bahrain and UAE. And which will sign, Yeah, UAE. That will sign eventually the treaty tomorrow but everything that he promised, eventually he delivered. So people look at that, and most of them don't understand the real approach of him, which is related more to the evangelist, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. But they look at it as pure Israel, as a non relation between President Trump and Israel. And they say, why do I get all this good? Why he love me that much? Why does he just keep giving and giving and giving? It just never stops. Even in places like, you know, for instance, uh, high CC in Hague, when he said, if somebody will keep on prosecuting the Israelis, we will hunt him down. And this is exactly what's happening, because they start now, they have the three phases of uh, prosecuting the prosecutors of the Hague court. okay And you get to see that Israel is the main key issue of that current president. And for Israelis who look at that, they say, wow, it's so good. <laughs> Why do we deserve all that? So this is why Israelis look at uh, President Trump as a unique figure, as a president which try uh, as hard as he can to push against the Muslim countries for the Israelis. And they carry out the goodwill of him and they just want to reply him back with love. Because as I told you, which was the first mistake of Obama, Israel is looking for love. They want those gestures. That's, by the way, I believe the relationship will be so much better than the one that signed with Egypt or Jordan, because you get to see that it is going to be a warm relationship. And this is the most important thing to Israelis, to be welcomed, to be warmed by the other side.
0: Well, I think you were mentioning what Obama did and what President Trump did. And we can also say when you were talking about President Obama's visit to Egypt and then he made the famous Cairo speech, and many people said that he liked to understand what's going on in the Middle East. It was also something shown throughout the Arab Spring, where he supported the rebels in Egypt, and then we got the Muslim Brothers. And on the other hand, President Trump's first visit to the Middle East was actually to Saudi Arabia, stopping in Israel, and also gaining other results. So when we're talking about that, we have to compare those two speeches. I don't know if Trump was doing it on purpose. It was his first trip, right, as a president. That's what Obama did, the same thing. I mean, yes, President to Saudi Obama, Arabia, if I correctly, that was his first visit to Egypt. And Trump did the same thing, but to Saudi Arabia
1: and stopping in Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. That was the key element, most important thing that Israel, I think it was the first or the second trip of him. I think it was the first, but it might be something before that. And the fact that he was there speaking about the fact that he is going to deliver the deal of the century and the peace will break eventually. And as we can see, it really does. And I believe, by the way, that after the peace treaty, if we will check next year, we will see that the President Trump will get much more favorite rating within the Israelis, maybe towards the 80 or even 85% looking at that angle as something he said and delivered.
0: Some will debate with you whether it's a part of a general peace treaty with all the Arabs, but definitely there is a shift here with the Arab states, or I would say the Gulf states' policies With the Palestinians. And I think that one of the things that Trump did was actually asking for more accountability from the Palestinian side. And that's something that other presidents lacked of doing. So that was also something that Israelis said finally, somebody is putting the Palestinians in place. I mean, we can discuss also what's happening with UNRWA because not a lot of people actually know what's going on that you have two agencies dealing with the refugees. One of them is Unran, the other one is for general refugees from all over the world. And he was the first one to really say, hey, listen, this thing doesn't make any sense. And starting when we have refugee rights that people can inherit.
1: Right. And he cut the budget of $250 million for that. And you know, eventually, one of the things that I discovered within my research, uh, my thesis was about the C. Cannon, which was the the, the first founder CEO of AIPAC, the founder of AIPAC, exactly. And what I found is that we, in 1952, which was the first time ever that Israel received money from United States, it was via a regional agreement in which Israel was compromised for letting. Jews from Arab countries flee to Israel, and the rest of the Arab world got money for Arabs who flee from Israel to Arab places such as Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, etc. Each one of the countries received $75 million, and that was a sum that paid for governments as a reconciliation or as a money pushed from Americans to the region, to help those countries with the sub of population and put that in aside. Okay, so the numbers back there was almost the same. About seven hundred and fifty thousand Jews of Arab countries. My father, one of them, came from Libya, flee to Israel after the forty-eight war, the independence war, and exactly the same number flee from Israel or Palestine, if you want, back at this day, Palestine Mandatory, do yeah. the surrounding. Palestine from British Palestine, yeah, to the uh, next-door neighbors. So um, even in that aspect, the uh, UNRWA, which, as you said, already more than three, now it's four generations, inheriting that, and you can live in Beverly Hills in a mansion worth $10 million.
0: Like Gigi Hadid.
1: Exactly, and you will be be a refugee, a poor refugee. That's bizarre, that's weird. By the way, this is one of the most important things here, and I'm not trying to sound patronized, because I really do want to have a peace agreement with the Palestinians. But I think that what Donald Trump is doing with almost four years is shrinking them. And, you know, we're living in the Middle East, and Middle East, everything is bazaar, okay? It's a flea market, right? It's a bazaar. So as long as you in the bazaar feel that you have an upper end, you won't make any steps forward to try to promote any peace treaty. And the Palestinians, don't forget, had, Three very important, if you would like to call that, circles, okay, of influence. The first circle of influence was the immediate neighbors, the Arab neighbors, which was, if you would like to call it, the immediate back to lean on, okay, represented by the Arab League. You know, everything started in Khartoum back in the 60s. uh, With the three no's. Yeah, exactly, the three no's to the establishment, eventually to a state. The second circle was the circle of mainly European countries that suffered from, if you would call it, um, inconvenient within their countries themselves. A lot of Muslims immigrate, living in Germany, in France, in England, in Ireland, everywhere. And every time there is a military operation, they would go, there is unrest, people go outside, uh, etc. And the third is the whole world. So if you look what happened in 2012 what started the Arab spring everybody then understand that if you solve the Israeli Palestine conflict okay then it doesn't mean that you will Solve the problems within Yemen and Saudi. The problem within say, the Syria, Iraq, etc. Yeah. Because the one hundred within years the
0: Muslim world, what you can say
1: exactly. But you know, back in the days, everybody believed that if you would solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem, that that will be the whole core of the problem of the instability in the Middle East and from the Middle East for the rest of the world. So that was the first domino who fell. Okay, second domino to fell. Was the domino of the both the European like uh, right leader, a lot of national leader, and Donald Trump? Okay, that came, and they look at uh, Islam as something that they need to push back. It's see Sebastian Kurz in uh, in Austria. You see that Huben in Hungary, and others. So the ultra
0: conservatives.
1: Yeah, exactly, and they pushed against the Muslim. Okay, and so that was the second round, and the first one which was the most important one, was the Muslim. And I don't know if people realize that, but the Arab League last week decided to push back against the Palestinian demand to condemn Israel. Only two members voted in favor. The rest of them either vote against or sustained. This is unbelievable. And so now the Palestinians do not have any more backing of any one of the three circles. So... They are now in a position, I think it's still transaction position, because the current uh, leadership doesn't want or willing to go the extra mile to come up for an agreement with Israel. But I believe, as Abu Mazen is growing very old, he's 84, the next one that will come after him, maybe very fast, will push forward for a deal. And as much as I read the New York Post today, that Bibi gave Trump four years of non-annexation promise for the deal. Uh, no I believe, way. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that such... I believe surprise. that surprise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I believe that even though he obviously said that it never happens... Just I like he said it
0: happens, never happened with the F-35s. That F-35, uh, <laughs> exactly,
1: yeah. Calling the Pinocchio story. He just can't say anything you know, without uh, telling a lie. But I believe that that was the deal that was delivered. And in that sense, if President Trump, and even if not President Trump, I think that also Obama, he was in favor of that peace treaty. And I believe that within the scope of the few next years, when the leadership of the Palestinian will uh, change and somebody that is not uh, very old or very radical will replace it, I believe that there will be path to peace because they have no more backing. And in that essence, I think, uh, now I'm talking as a historian, we can never understand things within the scope of time. But within 20 or 30 years, when we look on the presidency of Trump and try to understand what was the most important breakthrough to a peace treaty, would be this changing roles in the table. Whereas the uh, United States stop being honest broker slash pushing to the Palestinian side in favor of the Palestinian side, because you're Israelis, you need to be the grown up brother if you'd like. It just switched the table. And he started to push back the Palestinians. And that is a fresh way to look at things that, you know, maybe eventually will work. Because people kept trying to go at the same path for 40 years and accomplish nothing. So we don't know, but there might be an option that it will work.
0: And I want to circle back to the beginning where you said that uh, Israelis and American Jewry are just the opposite with the numbers of supporting President Trump. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering, because a lot of the criticism is after the president decided that he's going to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, for example, or he recognized the Golan Heights as an Israeli territory, that a lot of the people said, listen, he can't be or the U.S. lost its place as an honest negotiator because it's very one sided. And I would like you to put a glance on the evangelist support or the reasons, actually. I mean, I'm going towards the evangelist support, but maybe you can enlighten us on why actually he's doing it. I mean, is it because he's so connected to Israel and to the conservative Jews here? Or is it because of his evangelist supporters? Or is it a combination of the two? Or maybe he just liked the tanning
1: and he thought that
0: in Tel Aviv he can tan just like in Florida.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you something. Look, Donald Trump understands politics. And this is something that uh, people who doesn't like him fail to understand. And they might be surprised again in a month or so to come because failing to understand is tactics, is way of trying to crack down the path to victory in an election. So basically, if you're looking at the election, the first round of 2016, what you see is that at the beginning, the most important thing for him was to cover the base of the evangelists. Okay? Now, we're looking at a guy that, back in the 80s, was a Democratic-registered um, He was donating UK, money to... And donating money. And in the press in 1999, he said that he is pro-choice. So something that everybody makes, even if you don't like him, if if you despise him, even if you think that he's ignorant and fool, you would have to ask yourself a question, honestly, ask yourself, how does a person who was never elected, even to the Trump Tower building executive board, okay, (laughs) he he was never elected to anything, anything. manage to win the highest job in the land, okay? I mean, look at that. There was only one president to that. And it's also not something that we can say that is identical. We're talking about Eisenhower, that was one of the most decorated heroes of Second World War II, and was the governor of Europe, which is something like being governor of Texas and running to presidency. He was never elected to that. But he was like the only president that you can try to say that it's something like Donald Trump. No other president was as, I would call it uh, mature, in unelected process, okay? Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, how did he manage to carry this out? So basically, I wasn't there. I wasn't sitting with him. I didn't take notes that he gets to do with Bob Woodward, and now he paid for that. But what I can try to understand is that he put himself in map, And he said, listen, there are few bases that I need to take to myself, which would be the peer, most important peers in the way to uh, the victory. And it goes one way. It's going to be by designated states. And he knew back in 2016 that if he wants to carry out some of the bases that weren't Republican back from the 80s, talking about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, Michigan yeah. he needs to go to one of the Democrats call themselves the Big Tent. And that's the eclects of many, many different, you can't say who is the Democrat voter. You know who is the Republican voter. You can, you know, it's a Christian, he lives in the suburban, usually a white man that uh, works uh, in a job that uh, is agriculture, something of that yeah. nature. But if you would try to identify who is the Democrat voter, you will fail right at the beginning, because you don't even know what kind of origin, what believe he believe, It can be queer, it can be socialist, it can be environmental, it can be Jew, it can be black, it can be Latino. It's not the same cut. So he understood that if he wanted to get himself elected, first off he needs to secure very good his base. And then he needs to go and try to steal three bases. The basis, by the way, I just opened brackets because this is not the topic that we're going to talk today. If you want, we'll do it sometime in other podcasts. The three bases that he wanted to steal, if you may, is the story of the organized unions of blue-collar laborers. And this is how he succeeded. He managed to go and steal the places where people lost their job. And there was a lot of mistakes, such as Hillary Clinton talking about we're going to take the coal the, the, miner the pl- out, of, uh, out of the and all deplorables etc but those are the eventually if you want to call it uh, the slim victory but the base the, the heavy base okay that she called them the islamophobic the stinky uh, walmart shoppers okay if you would call it the unpopular way or the not politically correct or the way uh, sean Hannity put it every day in his show okay so he knew that he need to secure them, and how do you secure it? You secure it by first trying to reach out to the largest group affiliation of religious in the country, and that is the evangelicals. There's twenty five percent of America, ninety million yeah. people are people who were either born again Christian or born to a family that the evangelist and they are also the most trepidated religion growing in America and around the world and this religion had few very important peers one of the most important one is the pro life versus the pro choice that's why yeah, he was the, the first sitting president exactly that way he was the first sitting president to march in the march that the pro life he uh, chooses his runmate, pure evangelist. That was his most important accomplishment, you know, being evangelist. You know, Mike Pence is evangelist. That's why he picked him up. Right. That's why he called him uh, to office to be his running mate. He cracked down the politically correctness, both in talking and identified the Muslim, and he portrayed himself as the savior of the Christianity. And also, he would call it the culture way. Remember him talking about there is no more Merry Christmas church, just a Happy Holidays. When I'll be president, they will stop to say Happy Holidays, they will come back to say Merry Christmas. There were a lot of affiliation where the evangelist really liked the tone, the way, and the attitude of him talking about those issues. But I think, by far, the most important issue carried by President Trump was the story of Israel. Now, you have to understand that This is exactly what is now my research for my PhD. I'm looking at the growth of the evangelical movement at the 80s and the 90s until the uh, act of moving the embassy to Jerusalem in 1995, which was the peak that is the border of the historical uh, outlook in my piece. Jerry Falwell, back in the 80s, at the early 80s, identified Israel as one of the core issues that a believer need to address to congress or somebody on nominee for presidency and therefore where you understand as Donald Trump understood very well that in order to feel the will of the evangelical and not to come up like as poor as Mitt Romney did in 2012 where they didn't went out to vote and that's among other reason why he lost the election he needs to be even more right to the demands of the evangelicals themselves. And this is exactly what he carried out. So he identified Israel and he understood that Israel is one of the most precious, important thing for them. By the way, not all the Israelis would prove their point of view, not in the religion affiliation where some of them, not all of them, but some of them, 20% of them, look at the uh, second coming prophecy. and they yeah, want The Armageddon
0: and the rise exactly. of Christ and the, all exactly. the Jews will return to Christianity, which is the original Judaism.
1: <laughs> exactly. By the way, Begin was asked about that because he was the first to found those connections, yeah. the connection with them. And he said, well, you know, when uh, Christ will come, we will ask him, eh, excuse me, have you visited here before? If you will say yes, I will convert to uh, Christianity. So it's very funny, his reaction. But I think it symbolizes a lot of, if you want to call it the cynical, or if not cynical, the realistic political science leadership. This is an ascola, the yeah. looking at the options of carrying out people with a completely different ideology of you in order to promote things that are within your core values. So many Israelis don't like that, and many Israelis don't like the fact that they're talking too much about Judea and Samaria. So, I mean, some of them are coming, even now, within the Corona pandemic, some of are <laughs> donating and traveling to Judea yeah. and Samaria to uh, volunteer there, you so, know, so. Uh, in harvest, the, uh, grapes, in order to wine or whatever. So, yes, the problem is that if they know them, not all of them know them, but if they right. already know them, some of them don't like them. But it's not important because for Donald Trump, they are the client And he's looking in order to fulfill their demands or their wishes in order to maintain the base. Just to understand, there is no other president in the history, at least of the record history, that has so much difference between the highest peak in his base, which is around 90%, No president in the past had such approval rating, whereas there was no such president that has such a low numbers, five to seven percent of people who did not vote him. So Donald Trump is working on his base as the most by far demanding politics to fulfil. And he can't care less about people that, you know, are not within his base or are not within his willing to conquer.
0: So you would say that in a way, uh, Israel is a big uh, piece of his election campaign. I mean, for his voters, it's very important.
1: For the the evangelists, of course. What I wrote in my book in 2018, it was the first time that he confessed. He said... I moved the embassy to Jerusalem for the evangelists. Some of the Jewish people didn't even like that. So he came up and said out there, you know, it's not for Israel. It's not for Bibi Netanyahu. It's not for the Jews of America. No, it's for his base. That's what the base want. That's what he gets. No problem.
0: Yeah, And I just want to remind our audience that we're not going to discuss the implications of Trump's moves, but just we're trying to explain why Israel is like him. And, Unfortunately, our right uh, episode is yeah. coming to an end, even though I can speak with you for hours. And I want to circle back to one last thing. You know, you we were talking about the Arab League and uh, the Khartoum uh, declaration that said not for peace with Israel, not for negotiating with Israel, and not for uh, accepting Israel. And eventually, you know, we're. I think it was 1968 that uh, 60, they had 60. 67, yeah. right after the Six-Day War. You know, now it's technically what we would say in Hebrew, otmeta. I mean, the whole declaration is irrelevant. And the Arab countries, they do understand that they have bigger interests with Israel than uh, what they can gain continuing supporting the Palestinians. But I do want to ask you one last thing to conclude How do you think it will uh, influence? the relationship between the Israelis or the Palestinians? Do you really think that there is going to be any change in the near future? And do you think, you know, if uh, let's say that there is going to be another American president in the near future, maybe, we don't know. Do you think that the Arab states will change their policies with Israel or we will see future uh, accords with other Arab countries like Saudi Arabia, for example?
1: First of all, I think that uh, already the horses have left the stables. The outlook of the Israeli and, if you would call it, the modern Sunni states in our region, in the Middle East, and even farther than that, it's the Muslim countries uh, in Europe, as Sarajevo and Kosovo. Not Kosovo, sorry. And in Africa, that are uh, Sudan, that are pushing into a relationship in Israel, is in many, many ways if you would like to call it a renaissance that is on the back or is being carried on the back of the Palestinians. So the Palestinians have now been stepped in the back in every angle in which you can even believe because all those years, their main relevancy was if you would come up to a deal with me, you would get the cherry on the ice cream and you get all the Arab nations coming with me. So they were the gatekeepers. Now, they are irrelevant and you know, things are moving so rapidly fast. For instance, today, just today, I saw that the Weinzmann Institution, which is one of the most important, significant uh, institutions in, yes. yeah, in Israel, yeah, signed with Ben Ziyad University in Dubai. Whereas you can see in some of the campuses in the United States that, you know, one of the most progressive way of thinking you know, we didn't talk that much eventually on progressive within the Democrat Party, but some of the peers that the progressive trying to identify themselves, unlike the establishment of the Democrat Party, which was standing for Israel from Truman the till these days, the beginning, exactly. So Israel is a liability because it is the last colonial resort in the world. So if you see some of the campuses in Berkeley, in California, in the East Coast, where they're pushing very hard. Some of them, Colombia in New York, close to where you live, pushing agenda of BDS of boycotting Israel, etc. Okay? The peace treaty was not even signed yet. It will be signed only tomorrow, but already they have this collaboration between the Weizmann Institute and the Ben Ziyad University, which that is way, way beyond anything that any Israeli believed I would say, five, six, seven months ago. So it is so fast right now. And, you know, some of the things we don't know. We don't know what is the real estate that the IDF is going to get just on the coast of Iran. And I know for sure that there is such a real estate that we will get there. I'm quite sure that we
0: already have. I mean, uh, the non-formal relations with the UAE and the Gulf states, the Sunna Gulf states, it was actually started at 1994. We both know it. So I'm quite sure that we already have this, uh, you know, the military and the intelligence uh, collaboration against Iran. We didn't discuss Iran, you know, which is a bigger threat to the Gulf states. I mean, it's a lot to cover. And I think, you know, Kobe, you do a great work with that. And we will continue our, uh, in another episode to speak about those topics, to bring them. Um, yeah, we
1: can settle to a meeting right after the election to see what is the next four <laughs> years are going uh, to look like. Look definitely. Like, exactly.
0: <laughs> but anyway, I really want to thank you. I, I think that you, to gave you gave a lot of inputs to our audience. I'm going to add, you know, a link to your books so people can review them and uh, actually to purchase them. I highly recommend them. I'm not getting any commission here, uh, <laughs> but uh, I just think it's a great reading and it will enlighten Things differently for many of our listeners, so thank you very much, Kobe, for joining me today, for joining us, and enlightening us. And thank I'm you forward very much for Kobi.
1: recording with you the next time. Yeah, I'm looking forward as well. Thank you very much. Take care. God bless. Same.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.